as we declare what is true, what is right, but really the honest condition of our hearts at times. And uh, I don't want to uh, also neglect as we keep the carges, and uh, when I say carges, that is Mark and Cassie Cargelinen, just so you know, but they're carges in my mind. Um, I don't want to neglect them as well as Pastor Tom and Buddy Bear, but I also know that our brother Jeff Scott has just returned from Liberia. Uh, Jeff, where are you in here right now? There you are. There you are, brother. Are you on our time zone, or what time zone are you on right now? You're not even on a time zone. Okay. Well, you know what? It is good to have you back, brother, and uh, we love hearing how God in his goodness, in uh, just the spirit-led way, provided just the right, very unique parts to get that tractor up and running. And so God is good, and we got to keep our dear brother, Pastor Anthony, in prayer because he's there all the way through the month of February. And so I want to encourage us as a family to keep uh, encouraging him, to praying for him, to interceding for him, that God would help him and enable him to fulfill his ministry. So... Um, that being said, I'd also want to reiterate the words of our brother Ed Ketzel uh, as we were talking before service this morning. We do take it very seriously to come alongside one another and give as those who have need. And so uh, we kind of discussed that. I love the fact that Ed in his background uh, has that Coast Guard background, but I know there are many. It's not just Coast Guard. It's many others. And so we want to be available. And if that is a concern that you have, then we want to come alongside you, talk with you, and make sure that you are not in need at this time. You know, we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, picking up in chapter 4 here, and uh, it's interesting that, as no doubt you and I can relate to in various ways, that Jesus has just been anointed by the Spirit of God been affirmed by his heavenly father from a voice of heaven, and now he gets led into the wilderness and gets, in a sense, bombarded with temptation. On one hand, it's just an exciting, momentous event that takes place when he is baptized by John the Baptist, and then he's led into the wilderness, and it's all-out war. In his book on temptation, Russell Moore writes this very, I think, sobering and but very parallel illustration of our fight and temptation. He says, it used to be that cows were forced and prodded into the slaughterhouses when they were basically going from grazing the fields to becoming a steak for your 4th of July barbecue. And he said the process at one time used to be in such a way where the cows really resisted and caused lots of problems and made the whole operation of turning a cow into a steak a very difficult process because it was just very traumatic for the cows and it was also very inefficient to get the job done and money was being lost in the process until one day a scientist came, came in with a very different concept, a very different strategy. I quote from his book, He says, in this system, the cows aren't prodded off the truck but are led in silence onto a ramp. They go through a squeeze chute, a gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. The cattle continue down the ramp on a very very smoothly curving path. There are no sudden turns. The cows are experiencing the sensation of going home, the same kind of way they've traveled so many times before. As they mosey along the path, they don't even notice that their hooves are no longer touching the ground. 
and a conveyor belt slowly lifts them gently upward, and then in a twinkling of an eye, a blunt instrument levels a surgical strike between their eyes. Their transition from livestock to me to meat, and they're not aware enough to be alarmed by any of it. Not much different than the strategy Satan uses to tempt us to sin against God. Sometimes Satan's strategy is an all-out assault, yes. Sometimes it's just like ruthless and you're barely holding on by the skin of your teeth or really ultimately by the grace of God. But very often, the way Satan seeks to tempt us and ultimately entice us to sin against God is by making us believe that he's not even doing anything. To make us believe that, you know what? Everything's fine. Everything's under control. He'll even roll out the red carpet for you, so to speak. He'll make it feel like nothing is really going on. Even this little compromise is really insignificant, so it doesn't really matter. The fact is, Satan, our enemy, is a formidable enemy. Formidable in the sense that he is, yes, intends to strike fear in us, but on the other hand, he's also insidious and deceptive in the fact that he makes us think that he doesn't even exist. That he's not even a part of the equation of your problems right now. But one thing you and I need to be very clear about in life, at least life on this side of eternity, is this. That temptation... And ultimately, temptation to sin against God is a very real reality. You and I are going to be tempted every single day of our lives. Whether it be an all-out assault by Satan himself or by our weak flesh or by just people in general or in the very subtle, compromising, so, so to speak, ways. The fact is, you and I would probably do ourselves a great service, we would do ourselves a great favor if we were to wake up each morning and before our feet touch the ground to stay there just for a few moments and and just acknowledge the fact that we will be tempted. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. If we would just acknowledge for a moment That yes, God, you are king, and yes, God, you reign, and God, at the same time, we have a formidable enemy that seeks to take me out, that seeks to make me extremely ineffective, that seeks to destroy my life and my family and my relationships and and everything about me. It makes me believe that I cannot trust the promises of God. And the fact is, there's no place you can go to escape it. You know, sometimes in the the monastic movement, I'm not talking about 100 years ago, I'm talking about a few hundred years ago, there was a a long uh, season in which monastic monks would sometimes, in their effort to resist uh, sin and temptation, they would literally isolate themselves. They would literally live in a cave. Sometimes Hindu or Buddhist monks do that even to this day to uh, kind of desire nothing. But monastic monks would sometimes isolate themselves in the attempt to... uh, totally removed themselves from any temptation and sin. And what they discovered very quickly was that even though they would be absolutely alone, even though that they would be absolutely by themselves with no uh, 
input, so to speak, from everything else in life, temptation followed. Realizing that no matter where they went, no matter what steps they took, they could not escape sin. They could not ultimately escape the temptation to sin. And the reason for that is because until sin and death and ultimately our enemy is destroyed once and for all, you will endure an all-out assault to compromise what you know to be right and true. You will be tempted to justify certain decisions because they will make you feel good, at least temporarily. You will be tempted to not care anymore because you've been fighting so hard and so long and you're just plain weary. No doubt you may even be able to, right now, this morning, identify with the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says these things, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, for I do the good that I do, for I don't, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Does that resonate with anybody in here? So Paul makes this conclusion, and by the way, this is on the heels of just establishing the gospel of grace that we've been so richly blessed with. And even with the gospel of grace that we have been so richly blessed with and that God has conquered sin ultimately, but it's not quite fulfilled, we see that God has overcome everything. Sin and death has been dealt with once and for all, but we see that even in that, on this side of eternity, we still have a very real fight and struggle with temptation and sin. Even, having, even people that have the spirit of God indwelling them still are tempted. Even the Apostle Paul himself will say, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? Well, thankfully, as Hebrews 4 makes very clear, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is really good news for two reasons in my mind. First of all, when I read a passage like Hebrews 4.15, we see this. It tells me that temptation itself is not a sin. That even though every single day I may experience and endure temptation, that in and of itself is not sin. Because Jesus himself was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So just because you are tempted does not mean that you are doing the wrong thing. Just because you are tempted does not mean that somehow God's favor has left you, that somehow you are doing the wrong thing necessarily. Secondly, what it encourages me and what should encourage you is that because Jesus was tempted in every way and without sin, we also see that Jesus models for us what it looks like to resist temptation so that we will not fall into sin. In our passage here this morning in Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus has just come out of the waters of baptism, anointed by the Spirit, affirmed by his heavenly Father, this is my beloved Son, and now he is led into the wilderness to be tempted. 
Now, there are many parallels in Matthew chapter four here, and I'm not gonna go into detail with them right now, but you see the parallels of the Garden of Eden. Adam himself was tempted to eat something. Jesus himself, the second Adam, as Paul will say, is also tempted to eat something. One fails, one does not. We also see the parallel in the wilderness where Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days fasting, and yet the people of Israel were also led into the wilderness for 40 years for testing. But I think what is most profound about the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4 is this. We see that Satan is ultimately attempting to assault and manipulate the sonship of God, the sonship of Jesus Christ. Recall that just prior to this, a couple of verses earlier, we see that God the Father himself speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. No greater declaration, no greater affirmation. And then we see just a few verses later, if you are the son of God, second temptation, if you are the son of God, You see, Satan, what he loves to do is he loves to take God's promises and twist them and make you think that you cannot believe them. For example, if God were to say, you are my beloved, because he does, Satan is gonna tempt you and say, are you really God's beloved? Some people are, but you aren't. Have you looked at your performance lately? Have you looked how much you've screwed it up lately? Don't you realize how much of a royal failure you are lately? Yeah, you've moved out of beloved status. Did God really say, by the way, since Genesis chapter three, Satan's been posing this phrase. Did God really say, can you really trust God can you really take God as word? Is, he, is God really faithful? Does he really mean what he says when he says it? Planting all kinds of seeds of doubt. I was just at a seminar earlier this week and Luis Palau was speaking at this seminar and after 60 years of ministry, Luis Palau just recently was diagnosed with terminal cancer and so he's kind of giving his last hurrah. He only has months to live. And he says when he first got the diagnosis of terminal cancer, it was, he said it was very strange. He says, I've been an international evangelist for 60 years. I've been telling millions of people about the love of Christ and the assurance of one's salvation. And then when I got that diagnosis, all kinds of thoughts rushed into my head. Am I really saved? This is a man who's been walking with Jesus for only over 80 years, and he's asking this question, am I really saved? Does God really love me? Have my sins actually been forgiven? I've been telling millions of other people that that's what you can believe and trust in, and now all of a sudden, I'm beginning to doubt it myself. Where are these thoughts coming from? The fact is, no one is exempt from temptation. Even if you've walked with Jesus your whole life, Satan has many strategies and tactics to make you doubt, to make you not trust the promises of God. So we see that Jesus, 
because he sympathizes with our weaknesses, is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read that in verse 1, it might actually strike you as a little odd because the Spirit of God is leading Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Are they working in tandem with one another? Are they complementing one another? Are they kind of in cahoots with one another? What's going on here? Does God tempt people or does, God, does Satan test people? What is really going on? Let me just say very concisely that God does not tempt, God tests. But Satan tempts. If you look at James chapter one, for example, you might recall that in the very beginning of James, we see that, that, um, that James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God's intention for us, as we've talked about many times before, is that his number one goal for you and for me is to transform us into his likeness. He wants us to be the real deal. Not just someone who is easily professing the right thing, but never embodying the right thing. He wants us to be the real deal. Not just people who say the right thing, but are also doing and living the right way. Living a life that is consistent with what they profess. And so God, in his love for us, allows us and even causes us to be tested so that we might be that much more refined. On the other hand, sometimes the way in which God tests us is through his allowance of Satan's temptation. We see even later in James where James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. (laughs) But each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What you and I must understand is that actually the word for temptation and testing are actually the same word. In the scriptures, in the original language, in the Greek, we see that the word is actually the exact same word and the context decides ultimately whether it is a word of testing or a word of temptation. How do you know the difference? Well, it's temptation when it is intended for evil and it is testing when it is intended for good. So we see that ultimately, even in Matthew chapter four, we see that the spirit of God is ultimately testing the son of God, allowing him to be tested, and yet it is Satan who is ultimately tempting the son of God. What I love about that is, even though Satan has his intentions, even though Satan has his motivations, we see that God is sovereign even in that. John MacArthur says it this way, he says, it is God's great desire to turn into victory what Satan intends for failure. To strengthen us at, every, at the very point where the adversary wants to find us weak. So we see, we see these three temptations in Matthew 4 when Jesus is led into the wilderness and what's interesting about these temptations is the fact that these temptations are common to all of us. Now, they, they seem very specific to Jesus in his, in his circumstances, but ultimately, if you look under, underneath what is really taking place, what, what Satan is seeking to really do, we see that these temptations are actually true of all of us. 
So we see the first temptation is very much this. We see that the first temptation is really the temptation to sin through self-gratification. Look at verses two through four with me. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Kind of an understatement. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. At first read, this does not seem like much of a temptation, if you were to ask me. When I read that text, I'm going, okay, Jesus has been fasting 40 days. Satan comes on the scene and says, well, you know, you're obviously hungry, and I don't think Jesus is denying the fact that he's hungry. He says, why don't you just turn these, these stones into bread? After all, you are hungry, and you've got to eat eventually. So what's the hurt? What's the harm? What's the big deal? Why in the world is this even a temptation for Jesus? It's a temptation because what Satan is actually asking Jesus to do is to fulfill his desires apart from God's will. What Satan is actually tempting Jesus to do is to fulfill his desires apart from God's will. In other words, Satan is seeking to to dismantle Jesus' trust in his heavenly Father. Satan is seeking to disrupt Jesus' submission to his Father, and he's seeking to, uh, uh, to tempt Jesus to doubt his Father's word and love and provision. Yet as Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or if you look elsewhere in, G- in John chapter 4, for example, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work what this means for you and for me is this the fact is Satan loves to tempt us in those things we need or desire most Satan loves to tempt us in those things that we need or desire most David Platt puts it this way. He says, Satan works at the levels of your wants. Satan works at the levels of your wants. For example, if you desire food, then be prepared to be tempted with undisciplined eating. If you desire success and admiration for your work, then be prepared to be tempted to become a workaholic, to be motivated by doing it for people's admiration of you. If you desire sex, then be prepared to be tempted with lust and pornography and everything that's involved with that. If you desire security, then prepare to be tempted to look to anyone to get it. The bottom line is this, whatever it is you desire, even if it is a God-given desire, Satan is tempting you to act on that desire in a way that is outside of God's will for that desire. 
If you look at all these other things, food, uh, success, uh, sex, security, any number of things, those aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. They're just wrong when acted upon outside of the will of God. When they're acted upon outside of God's design for them. Yet, as we see in Matthew 6, and we'll obviously unpack more in detail later, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body and what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. You see, Satan in his attempt to disrupt Jesus' mission, to tempt us, to tempt Jesus ultimately, is the sin of self-gratification. To get things now. To get what we want on our terms. To do things our way instead of God's way. And so Jesus Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Interestingly enough, you go to temptation number two, and we see that Satan takes Jesus at his word and even manipulates the word of God. Look at verses five through seven with me. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Once again, we now have not just the sin of self-gratification, but now that, now that Satan is tempting Jesus toward the sin of self-protection. And it's interesting that when Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, now Satan himself takes the word of God and twists it and manipulates it. By the way, there's a profound truth in this. Scripture interprets scripture. And if you take one passage of scripture in isolation without its interpretation with the rest of scripture, you will develop a very uh, distorted theology you'll develop a very distorted understanding of God. Even Satan himself knows the scriptures. He quotes directly from Psalm chapter 91. But once again, we see that even though he distorts and takes out of context Psalm chapter 91, Jesus responds to a twisted interpretation of scripture with a correct interpretation of scripture. And we see that he ultimately says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is another direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was really a reference to Exodus 17, where the people of Israel were, in fact, testing God, saying, God, you need to provide water for us. You need to prove yourself to us. God, you need to come through. If you say you're going to provide for us, if you say that you are faithful, then prove it to us. And, of course, God had a lot of reasons to be angry with his people but at the same time was very patient and compassionate. But what we see that Satan is doing is that he is tempting us, and specifically Jesus here, 
to not trust our Heavenly Father. To not trust in the provision and the promises of God. It's interesting. David Platt quotes this. He says, we are tempted to twist God's word around for our personal preferences. We are tempted to question his plans for us when, we don't go, when they don't go the way we would like. We are tempted to doubt his love for us when something goes wrong. We are tempted to ask for signs that he is still with us even though he has shown his faithfulness to us over and over and over again. We are tempted to complain to him about the circumstances of our lives, boldly thinking, if not even saying, just like the Israelites, God, are you with me? You might recall from the Real God series, the faithfulness of God. The fact is, you and I will fail one another all the time. As parents, as much as you want to be a good parent, you will still fail. You will still make mistakes. As friends, as much as you want to be a good friend, you will still let other people down. As grandparents, as siblings, you will still not love as you ought to. But God never fails. God is always faithful. He is a perfect father. And what you and I must come to believe over and again every single day is that regardless of my circumstances, regardless of the difficulty I may find myself in even now, that does not mean God does not love you. That does not mean that God has forgotten you. That does not mean that God has somehow walked away from you. That never changes. Perhaps he's actually loving you so much that he's refining you so that you might best glorify him. Perhaps he is using this in your life to not only remake you, but so that your life would be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which, by the way, is your act of worship. Satan tempts Jesus and us through the sin of self-gratification, through the sin of self-protection, but also he tempts us through the sin of self-exaltation. Look at verses 8 through 10 here with me. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Again, you might be wondering to yourself, as I did when I was first reading this passage, is why in the world is this a temptation for Jesus? Why in the world would Jesus be tempted by Satan's idea that, hey, I'll give all this to you when Jesus himself knows his identity. He knows he's the son of God. He knows that all these things belong to him anyways. He already knows that he inherits everything. 
He already knows that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He already knows that all things were created by him and for him. Jesus knows all these things. So why in the world does, this, does Satan have the audacity to think that he can offer it to the one who already owns it? Well, when you look underneath the surface at what Satan is actually asking, Jesus knows that it all belongs to him, him anyways, but what Satan is offering is an opportunity to have it without suffering. You see, Satan is tempting Jesus and saying, Jesus, you can have the throne right now and you don't even have to die. Jesus, you can have dominion over it all and you don't even have to suffer for it. You get the fast pass. You can get it quickly. And you don't have to bear the sins of this world. And you might be thinking, well, Jesus, would he be tempted by that? Well, look at the Garden of Gethsemane. When he pleads to his heavenly Father, Lord, if there be any other way, any other way, please take this cup from me. Please let there be another way to redeem the human race. Please let there be another way to save the souls of men and women. Yet not my will, but your will be done. I'm so thankful for the fact that Jesus did not give in to the quick, fast-past approach, but that he was faithful to his mission, that he was faithful to his calling, and that he endured the cross because as a result, you and I are saved. As a result, you and I have the assurance of salvation. As a result, you and I are forgiven of our sins because if Jesus would have taken and fallen into temptation, we would be most to be pitied and we would not be saved. And the only thing we would have is to eat, drink, and be merry because this life is all we get. But thankfully, Jesus, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, is tempted in every way, and yet remains faithful. He remains sinless. You know, you and I, as I said in the beginning, would do ourselves a real favor, a real service, in fact, if we would just wake up each morning with this sobering understanding that we live in an all-out war. There's a few things that you and I must understand that are in your sermon notes. I'll just quickly breeze through them. But you must understand that the spiritual world is just as real as the visible natural world that we live in. The spiritual world, the forces of darkness and evil are very real. There's a spiritual realm that you and I may not see with our own eyes right now, but is just as real as the natural world in which we live. We must also understand that there's a very real war or battle that you and I are a part of. And you may not want to be a part of it, but you don't have a choice. 
You are a part of a battle. As, creator, as, as, uh, as a creation in the image of God, as image bearers of God, Satan's goal is to take out all that God loves. And so his desire for you is to destroy you. There is a very real battle that is taking place between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And we must understand as well, as, our, as I said before, our enemy is formidable. He seeks to intimidate and to strike fear. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's not a nice guy. We must also understand that the stakes in this spiritual war are eternal. We're talking about eternal life and eternal death. Just last night at Upper Room, someone, I don't know who, but they taped this little thing on the counter and it said, a letter from an atheist. I don't know, actually know where it came from, but I read it. and There was actually a ton of truth in it. Because it basically said this, if it's true that people are going to be lost for, utter, for eternity and totally separated from a loving God for all eternity, then what in the world are you Christians doing about it? You should be pounding the streets. You should be telling people that they're lost. And I said I couldn't be more in agreement. Knowing that people are going to die in their sin forever and experience eternal damnation forever ought to resurrect a sense of urgency within us going, my brothers and my sisters biologically, my coworkers, other family members, friends and neighbors, they're dying. Am I willing to take the risk of rejection to see God's grace poured out in their life. The stakes are not only eternal, but we see that the spiritual war is universal. We see ultimately that this doesn't touch just a few or handful of people, but this touches everybody. Every single person on the face of this earth, past, present, and future, is all affected by this spiritual war that you and I are part of. In fact, as believers in Christ, we must see things from a spiritual lens. We must see things from a spiritual battle, battle perspective. When things go on like, not that it's much as much now, but ISIS, for example, we must see ISIS from a spiritual perspective, understanding that this is really a spiritual battle. That the forces of darkness are using little puppets called human beings to enact and to destroy what God loves and has created. Yes, people are responsible for their own choices. But in the end, as Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and authorities and cosmic rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sixthly, we must understand that our involvement in this spiritual war is personal. You know, how often do we go in life and say, that happens to other people? That'll happen to other people. 
And then we're just shocked that it happens to us. Not saying that we love it, but as I said before, you and I must understand that the evil one comes to seek, kill, and destroy, and his goal for you is to literally take you out. He may not be able to take your salvation away from you, but he sure can make you the most joyless, insecure, bitter Christian on the face of this earth. He can sure make you a very ineffective witness for the cause of Christ. He can sure make you a stinky aroma for the cause of Christ. You and I must understand about ourselves personally. As 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, anyone is capable of anything. Have you ever thought for a moment, oh, I would never do that? Or how could someone even do something like that? Really? What planet do you live on? Anyone is capable of anything. There is no temptation that is not common to every single person, as Paul says. Just go to the prison. It's filled with people wondering, how in the world did I get here? How in the world did I compromise to this point where now I have no option to, re- to get out? Never in my mind would I have thought that this was my goal in life. Anyone is capable of anything. And the question I think it is begged for us is, how do we overcome temptation? How do we not fall victim to the relentless attacks by the enemy? Let me just say a few things, and I'm going to say this quickly. First of all, victory over temptation is possible when we are constantly prepared for it. Victory over temptation is is possible when we are constantly prepared for it. As I said in the beginning, waking up knowing, not wondering, but knowing you will be tempted knowing that Satan in various ways will seek to make you compromise, seek to entice you to just kind of bend the rules a little bit. Even just this past week, I'm working on the application of this temptation sermon, and I save my sermon notes often. Every point I make, I save. Microsoft Word has an autosave function, that's going. But I'm scared that autosave doesn't actually work as well as it needs to, and so I save every single point. After I make a point, I save it, I save it, I save it, I save it, I save it. I accidentally opened up a new document, I X'd out of it, do you wanna save it? No, I don't wanna save the new document, I didn't write anything on it. X'd out of it, gone. I'll be honest, I was a little ticked. Because the last few hours of typing and, and processing and everything kind of coming together, I was like, are you kidding me? And, and the, the, the question in my mind is like, I've been saving this constantly. How is it not here? And I went to recovery mode and there was nothing there. I'm like, how did, this hasn't happened in years. How in the world can this happen? What in the world, God, are you doing? Oh yeah, Satan wants to take me out. Of course this happens. Victory over temptation is possible when we, when we are constantly prepared for it. But secondly, the way we constantly prepare for it is by constantly turning to the Lord. 
In other words, the way in which we overcome temptation isn't being strong enough on your own terms, isn't somehow being uh, self-determined enough, isn't thinking that you need enough self-control. That's not how you overcome temptation. No, temptation is overcome when you turn to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, and then he, by his grace, empowers you and enables you to overcome. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Your ability to overcome temptation is only from God because as we've probably proven ourselves, even this morning, you're not strong enough. You're not able enough. You're not capable enough. Satan is too good at what he does. Our flesh is too weak to stand strong. We need God's grace I love what Jesus says in Mark 14, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. Point being, the things you are consistently consumed with ultimately determine your action in life. If you're consumed with the things of, of, from above, consumed with the things of God, then all of a sudden sin no longer has the same draw and appeal in your life. Sin loses its power when you're consumed with the things of God. It doesn't mean that you're still not tempted. It just means that when you are tempted, it no longer has that same enticing power in your life. But when we are not set, when our minds are not set on the things of God, and when we feel insecure, and when we feel hurt, and when we feel bitter, and when we feel like we're not getting enough recognition, and when we feel like someone should be treating us differently, and when we feel, you know, fill in the blank, then all of a sudden we're going, well, you know, at least this gives me immediate gratification, even though its ultimate end is destruction. Thirdly, we must understand that temptation begins in your mind. Temptation begins in your mind. There's a reason why Paul says in Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of your mind because if you are not transformed by the renewing of your mind, then we are susceptible to all kinds of ideas and thoughts. You and I must understand that every thought that comes into our head is not necessarily from God. Just because you think it doesn't make it right. Just because you think it doesn't make it appropriate. Just because you think it doesn't make it helpful. Temptation begins in the mind. As James 1 says, when each person is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. I just recently finished a book this week by Alan Fadling, or however you say his name. He wrote uh, two books, The Unhurried Life and The Unhurried Leader, and both are... Uh, I would highly recommend. And the unhurried leader, he writes, actually it's interesting, uh, this chapter I read as I was preparing this message on our thought life, and he, uh, 
he basically gave a very helpful structure to get in the practice of regularly doing in our lives. And what he says is we must really, uh, we must get in the practice of noticing our thoughts. He says, firstly, we must notice our thoughts. And what he means by that is this. He's saying, when those thoughts come into your mind, don't just kind of let them sit by idly percolating in your mind, but take notice of those things that you're thinking about. Take notice of those things that come to your mind going, wait a second, what is that thought? Why does that come to my mind a lot? Why do I think that consistently, perhaps? Sometimes we just kind of go through life hoping they just go away. But he says, take notice. Because he goes on to say that any thoughts that go unnoticed and linger below the surface, especially ones that are unhealthy, easily become strongholds. When we don't take notice of our thoughts, then we can't take those thoughts captive. And we don't take notice of those thoughts and take them captive. They instead become strongholds that start developing deep roots and then therefore we start relating to one another and to God very differently. Taking notice of our thoughts, but secondly, discerning your thoughts. After you notice what you're, what, what's going on in your mind, then we're supposed to discern, are these thoughts from God or are they not? Are these thoughts really of the Lord or is this really of my weak flesh or of Satan himself? One of the ways in which we can know whether a thought is from God or not is really how those thoughts make you emotionally respond. For example, when that thought comes to your mind, do you have emotions or feelings of anger, bitterness, resentment, fear, discouragement, doubt? It's probably not from God. But if those thoughts instead instill a deep sense of reassurance and hope and joy and fulfillment and peace and love for one another and towards God, then it very is, is very likely from God. We must take notice of those thoughts, discern the origin of those thoughts, and thirdly, and Ben, you can come on up here, we must respond to your thoughts. We must respond appropriately to these thoughts that fill our minds. Paul says this in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about, actually the word here is, be consumed by these things. Dwell constantly on these things. The fact is, brothers and sisters, you and I are in a very real battle. You may not want to be, but you are. And you cannot fight a spiritual battle without spiritual weapons. You cannot fight a spiritual battle without spiritual weapons. We must wake up conscious and fully aware that Satan has come to seek, kill, and destroy, but here's the good news. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and have it abundantly. And we get to experience 
that abundant life, the full life, when we turn to God and that let him fight our battles. It doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play, but ultimately we must turn to Christ and say, Lord, I need you. Even now, I need you.